Welcome to Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. 80 years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States intelligence community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later, she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. Today, we are going to mix things up a bit for our listeners. In this episode, we are excited to bring you a panel of three amazing men in the IC. On our panel today, we welcome Chairman Mike Rogers, Lieutenant General Vince Stewart, and Nick Coleman-Mandel, all esteemed current and former members of our United States intelligence community. Our first panelist, Chairman Mike Rogers, is a former Army officer, FBI agent, and member of Congress for Michigan's 8th Congressional District, who served as chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, more commonly known as HIPSI. Our second panelist, General Vince Stewart, is a United States Marine veteran and a career intelligence officer who served as the deputy commander at U.S. Cyber Command and the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency. Lastly, we are joined by Nick Coleman-Mandel, Deputy Chief of Staff at the State Department's Bureau of Intelligence and Research, or INR, who recently served as PDB briefer to the Secretary of State. Nick, Vince, and Mike, we are really thrilled that you're here with us today. I hope you're ready for some fun. (laughs) Absolutely. Thanks for having us. All right. So to kick us off, can each of you tell us a bit about your backgrounds? How did you get into the IC and how did you progress once you started? Nick, let's start with you. Sure. Thanks. Uh, And thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited and honored to be asked to be part of this panel. Uh, You know, I just sort of fell into the IC, honestly. When I was in college uh, as an undergrad, I was pursuing actually a journalism career. And it's only with the benefit of hindsight that I see how much in common journalists and intelligence analysts have. I worked for several years uh, for Consumer Reports magazine in New York, not far from where I grew up. And I decided when I was working there that I actually wanted to pursue something more international. So I went to graduate school at GW just across the street from the State Department, which uh, made it easy um, to commute to my internship there once I got one. Uh, I started there on the Columbia desk at State, thinking that eventually I might like to join the Foreign Service. Uh, And, you know, I was part-time working on the Columbia desk, and I was part of a program that allowed me to convert full-time to the civil service. I I couldn't, unfortunately, do it at the Columbia desk because they didn't have a full-time position, but just uh, from typical State Department fashion, getting coffees with everyone you can to see what kind of a job you can land next. Um, I learned about INR, which I didn't know much about at the time. And really the stars just sort of aligned and it ended up being this perfect job that hit on all my core interests and um, you know skills that I really wanted to build. And that was in 2013. Uh, and I've been there since. Uh, I spent several years as a counter-narcotics and counterterrorism analyst. In 2018, I went over to work for the President's Daily Brief, 
which falls under the office of the Director of National Intelligence. And I worked there um, on the production staff, kind of pulling the book together by day. And I did that for about a year. And uh, then I transitioned over to uh, the night team, actually, uh, as the briefer to the Secretary of State in 2019, which was really fascinating. And now I work uh, back in INR as the Deputy Chief of Staff for the Bureau. That's great, Nick. Thanks for sharing with us. So Vince, let's hear a little bit about your story. I would love to tell you that I was excited about being part of the intelligence community, but I joined the intelligence community kicking and screaming. <laughs> uh, I, I joined the Marine Corps in, uh, wait for it, 1981, I came on active duty. I was going to be an armor officer. In fact, I was trained as an armor officer. I had a big old tank with a big 105 millimeter gun, and I was going to go fight the Soviets and kill five of them before they killed uh, one of ours. And so that's what I started off with the Marine Corps uh, doing. The Marine Corps uh, offered me an opportunity to join the intelligence community, specifically the signals intelligence community, about three years into my service. And I wanted nothing to do with those intel weenies. Uh, <laughs> in fact, in fact, I almost ended my career because I, I fought it, uh, quite frankly. Uh, and I was starting to be a problem for the Marine Corps because I thought I knew what my future held, which meant uh, that I was going to be uh, the, the equivalent of Patton in the Marine Corps. And being an intel person was not something I really wanted to do. And quite frankly, I, uh, I, I got into a bit of trouble one Friday afternoon. And uh, while I was going through uh, training to be a signals intelligence officer, and uh, my director said, we're going to have a talk on Monday about your future. And uh, so I had the weekend to kind of think about what I wanted to be. If I wanted to simply be a, a armor officer or if I wanted to be a Marine officer. And once I settled on the idea that it was more important to be a Marine officer than to be just an armor officer, I got my stuff together, went in contrite uh, Monday morning, and uh, began a career in uh, the Signals Intelligence Committee. And uh, shortly after that, I was offered the opportunity to command a small intelligence unit in the Pacific. And I was pretty excited about the idea of commanding a unit in the Pacific um, and uh, followed up with the question, you know, uh, it's going to be in the Pacific. It's going to be on an island. Uh, you'll be in charge. I didn't realize on the at the time that the island was Adak, Alaska. Uh, so not what I had in mind. I was thinking Honolulu and uh, <laughs> right. that kind of Pacific island. And uh, so I did Adak, Alaska at the height of the Cold War. This was uh, 1986 time frame. We had some interesting missions uh, going up against the Russian forces in the Pacific. Came back from that, did uh, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, and then uh, got an opportunity to go to another island in the Pacific. This one was a little bit better, uh, Misawa, Japan. Uh, so, uh, again, at, at a time when we were still crunching with the, the Russians, KL-007 was shot down during that time frame, and so we had an opportunity to front row seat at that uh, effort. And the rest, uh, you know, uh, just kind of plugging away as uh, the Marine Corps gave me opportunities to command uh, units. 
opportunities to, uh, to, to get serious about the, the business of intelligence. And uh, my intent, uh, uh, I should have said this earlier, my intent was to really do three or four years and then get out and be an entrepreneur somewhere and be independently wealthy by, by age 30. Uh, <laughs> 38 years later, it's like, what the hell have you been doing? <laughs> so, but I had great opportunities and great uh, mentors and great uh, uh, folks who, uh, who I worked for. I had someone recently talk about all the ribbons and medals that I have that I wore on my uniform. And my response really to them was, I do wear it, but I had great folks who earned it. And if you look at the things that were accomplished, it isn't because uh, of any spectacular genius on my part. I guess the genius is find good people, empower them, and bask in their success. And uh, Wow, I love that. So, okay, love that. I'll stop there. Uh, you know the rest of the story. I got uh, spent the last 10 years here in Washington as the director of Intel for the Marine Corps, uh, the component commander, the Marine component commander at Cyber Command, BIA, and then as deputy at Cyber Command. So it's been a great career with great people, and uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, love it. Thank you for sharing. So, Mike, you're up next. Well, thank you so much. I, too, am honored to be on the panel, both, both Nick, who is uh, still in service, and I had the great privilege to work with uh, General Stewart. Uh, when he was at uh, DIA and and around the community. So it's great to see him. Uh, And as you said earlier, you normally do this, uh, and we were talking offline, you normally do this, you have one uh, woman who does the panel uh, and the discussion for the podcast. And what us three gentlemen decided is it took three men to replace one woman on your podcast. That's why you had three of us. Uh, Absolutely. I love it. So thanks for for doing this. I, I got interested in Law enforcement first. I uh, was actually a reserve police officer of all things in my little town when I was going to college. I don't even think that's legal anymore. They gave me a gun and a badge and said, go that way and, you know, stop somebody from doing something bad. It was really a small town uh, operation. So I got interested in law enforcement work. I had a friend of mine whose father was the, uh, the special agent in charge of the DEA for Detroit. Uh, for the Detroit division. And so I, every chance I got, I wanted to hear stories from him. And, uh, you know, he was a a wonderful guy. He was uh, one of those guys that dropped behind the lines in Korea when he was in the military and had great stories there and how he got into the DEA and how he rose up to prominence. Uh, And all of that was infectious to me. And he's the one that said, and I said, boy, that sounds, this sounds great. I really want to do this. And he said, no, you don't. You want to go to the FBI. So there's a lot more jurisdiction. Trust me on this. Uh, He said, go do something great, like join the army and then uh, go into the bureau. And that's exactly what I did. I went to school and I was very fortunate to uh, get commissioned in the, in the United States army at that time, did my service there and applied for the FBI. And I was right on the cusp of one of those, uh, you know, the scores were right on the, right on the edge. And uh, I was able to, to get in. Uh, and had a great career there. So there's two things I wanted to do. Uh, like General Stewart, I wanted to chase Soviets in the worst way. I wanted to find them and, and uh, you know, put the bracelets on them, as we used to say, or I wanted to work organized crime. So I got completely lucky. They assigned me to Chicago 
working the organized crime unit there, which was fantastic. I mean, it was, I, matter of fact, I probably would have done it for free. I'm glad I didn't say that at the time because I, I think I would have done that job for absolutely no money. And so you start to get a flavor of what intelligence-based outcomes are. That's what organized crime investigations are. They're intelligence-based kind of criminal investigations. Uh, and then I did some casework that uh, had some uh, intelligence and national security implications. Uh, so got hooked there. I made this kind of detour by deciding to run for a political office, uh, which is a whole nother story that uh, I won't I won't bore you with tonight. But after going through all of that, I, I was very interested in the intelligence, the intelligence community, and, and was fortunate enough uh, to get selected in 2004 uh, to serve on the intelligence committee. And so uh, through all that, uh, which again was maybe the best education that uh, anyone could possibly get, being able to look over all of the transoms, all of the stovepipes for all of the agencies uh, with an open book about what we wanted to see and do and, and participate in was absolutely phenomenal. You, you think you know about the community until you get into it. And then you realize just how big and broad and diverse the mission set is. And so I got to, and if you're passionately curious, like I am, it was, I was a kid in a candy store. It was fantastic. So uh, I had a great run and then became chairman in 2010 with a, a partner, Dutch Ruppersberger, Democrat from Maryland. And we re-ran it like a partnership. Uh, and we think we helped move uh, in the right direction for the intelligence community. We spent a lot of time, effort, and energy doing it. So that's kind of, that's the way I got there. I don't recommend people try to take this route. <laughs> It's probably better to, you know, to General Stewart or, or Nick's, uh, Nick's role is probably a much better way to do it. Better to do it over coffee, Nick, and looking for your next job than this whole political thing to get into. The <laughs> well, thank you for sharing, all three of you. So, Vincent, Mike, I don't think many people realize how complicated interactions between Congress and the IC agencies actually are. So as a former director of a major three-letter agency and a former chair of the House Intelligence Committee, can you tell us about this interaction and how you overcame skepticism on both sides of that relationship? Mike, we'll go with you first, and then we'll go over to Vince. Yeah, well, unfortunately, there was, uh, as you see today in the intelligence community, a little dysfunction. I think I'm being polite on the way the committees are operating today in relationship with the intelligence community. And I'm passionate about this because I was on both sides of that table as an operations guy in the in the bureau, and then seeing in my oversight role that I believe it's really important to have proper oversight in the intelligence community of these agencies because so much of it happens behind closed doors. Not everybody gets to participate in it. So I took that as a as huge responsibility. And by the way, if we don't have this kind of trust uh, with these agencies and the agencies have trust in us, the American people are going to start to lose faith in these agencies. And we knew that back then. And that's why I took that role so seriously. So we spent a lot of time, Dutch Ruppersberger and I, going around the community, making our case. He was a former prosecutor. I was an FBI guy. We were going to take it serious. We weren't going to do the I gotcha thing. And candidly, it took us a little while. Most of the agency heads at the time said, yeah, right. Because that's what they had no, seen in the past. You know, you find something wrong, you run to the microphone and say, I caught him doing something bad or didn't go right. And we just took all of that away. So it took us a while. It took us about six or seven or eight months of kind of going through and working through the process to regain what I think was the most important part of that is trust. And once we gained the trust where they knew we weren't out to get them, we were out to make sure that they, they were following the law as our 
constitutional role uh, provides for, but also did they have the support that they needed to accomplish their mission? We're asking them uh, as policymakers to do a really hard mission. And so I think through that uh, process, uh, we were able to gain their support. But I remember in the beginning, it's, it is 20 questions. You know, if you didn't ask it, they weren't going to tell you. <laughs> and so over time with trust, I got to where the, the agency heads would call up and say, hey, we have a problem. Can we come up and talk to you about it? That to me is the appropriate level of oversight. And we work it out. Uh, and that way, nobody was surprised. Nobody got, you know, clubbed. Nobody got had a press conference where you didn't realize what was going on. None of that. We just avoided all of that. Uh, and there's a whole bunch more to what we did to lead up to that, Dutch and I, but I'll leave that. But that was my thing is just developing that trust and then doing the job as it was intended and not if you're trying to get on the intelligence committee to be important or a nationally known figure, you're probably doing it wrong. Uh, right up front. And that's why we approached it. And I, I think it went well. And I think we've, we earned the trust and they earned our trust. And I, you know, that mutual relationship, I think paid, pay huge dividends for the country, for the United States, which I think that's what we were supposed to be about. So Vince, I'd like to hear what you thought on your side of the coin. Like, how did you feel? Yeah. So, um, I never wrote this down because I never wanted any, uh, evidence, for the prosecution uh, <laughs> at, at the back end. When you go to work in an organization, you can identify some strengths and weaknesses. You, uh, you identify some line of effort that you want to put uh, uh, resources against. And I had an unwritten line of effort simply called winning the hill. And it wasn't about beating the guys up on the hill. It was simply about how do you build a relationship on the hill so that they understood the agency, they felt like they were part of the decision-making process as you did things within the agency. And you build what the, uh, uh, the chairman talked about, the trust. So we did uh, lunch, we did uh, drinks, we did, and it wasn't just about the members. It was also how you get the staffers to understand what you're trying to get done. Because the staffers uh, most Americans don't really understand the power of the staffer. Uh, you know, so how do we get the staffers to understand uh, the agency? How do we get the staffers on our side? Not to reduce the oversight, but the importance of here's how we're structured. Here's what we're trying to do. Uh, let me get your advice. Let me tailor it. We went from we're not going to do congressional notification because that just generates uh, questions, too. Uh, we're going to notify them and, uh, you know, they can do with it whatever the heck they want to. But we're going to get in front of the issues rather than have some reporter call up and go, we're getting ready to do a story that says you guys are doing X and uh, we're talking to Congressman Y and he's really annoyed by this. So winning the Hill is a deliberate process of building the relationship, building trust, getting them uh, uh, members to understand uh, 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 what we are capable of. And that's a huge part of the problem. BIA had something like 100 tasks assigned to it, all very important. I used to uh, call us Mr. Potato Head because someone just said, hey, this is a great idea. Let's plop that ear in right here and off you go. Well, if the members on the Hill don't understand that I've got 100 tasks and I'm trying to decide what are the six that I really need you to support, I'm losing the battle. They're part of the board of directors. They need to understand what we're doing. So we spent a lot of time doing closed roundtables, 
because the hearings were particularly the public hearings we knew were bad praise, hope nobody's listening, a lot of kabuki theater. You know, uh, there was a lot of theater and the open hearings and that's where you get the gotchas. So we wanted to make sure we had these smaller sessions where we could actually talk frankly about the issues. But it's uh, the relationship building that uh, is not something that happens organically. As an agency head, you really have got to work on it. And it's all the pieces, including the staffers. So Nick, as someone who spent time briefing the senior customers like Vince and Mike as a PDB briefer, what could you tell us about your experience in that role? Because I can imagine that must be pretty intense, but also rewarding. That's the perfect way to put it. Uh, There's a a joke that most veteran briefers use. They say that the briefing job is the best job that you never want to do again. And that's exactly what it is. It's a job that for me was the most challenging job I ever had, but also, like you said, the most rewarding. Just to give you a sense um, and your listeners a sense of sort of the battle rhythm of the day, uh, a briefer will arrive in the office maybe around 1 a.m. and they'll spend the wee hours of the morning going through all of the intelligence that the intelligence community has provided in the previous 24 hours from reports to analysis and curating all of that information, deciding what your principal, in my case, the secretary of state and his senior team, deciding what they needed to see that day. Uh, And then once you've decided on the specific products going through, and since there's probably a lot of them and these people don't have much time, highlighting the important parts Uh, to make it easy for them to quickly get through. Uh, So you spend the morning doing that. And around five o'clock in the morning, you have the authors of the articles that you picked up that come in and they pre-brief you. So that gives you an opportunity to ask them nuanced questions about their piece, maybe ask them to elaborate or expand, Uh, always sort of channeling your, what we call your customer, right? Always channeling your customer. What what are they going to ask me? Therefore, what should I be asking the authors? So you do that for a couple of hours, and then depending on what time your customer takes their brief, anywhere from, you know, very early at the Pentagon, I think six o'clock perhaps, to, you know, um, I'd say the latest briefers would get out would be maybe eight o'clock. We would sort of disperse from headquarters, go out to downtown, and we would brief our customers. And after the briefings were done, we all kind of uh, congregate back at headquarters we would, do, uh, we would have a feedback meeting where we sat around a table. We provided feedback on how the morning went, what customers thought of the pieces, which ones they liked, which ones they didn't like. Uh, we'd then follow up on taskings that the customers might have had, questions that they had that we couldn't answer that had to be sent back out to the intelligence community for a response. And then depending on um, how your morning went, uh, you might get out of the office in the late morning, or in my case, I, I always had a hard time getting out before one o'clock. So it ended up being long days. It, it's a job that rewards masochists, but what, <laughs> uh, just uh, what a fascinating job. I, I mean, I really don't ever want to do it again, except maybe as a backup briefer, you know, but um, you just learn so much every day. And it's such a privilege to be sitting in that chair and to be trusted with, you know, the nation's secrets and to be trusted by the principal to be the one that's imparting that information to them. Uh, so really, really terrific job. You know, I think um, something that if any of your listeners are in the intelligence community, something that they should put on their 
somewhere in their career ladder if they can, because it's it's a job like no other, and it gives you a really um, unique perspective on both the community and the policymaking process and how those two come together. Can I just add a little piece here? Although I called my guys and gals briefers, the best folks I had, uh, we had a discussion. Uh, in many cases, I had an opportunity to see uh, some of the articles, and it was really a discussion about the article, trying to find the next set of questions, find, trying to find uh, the, the deeper insights. And so it wasn't, uh, good morning, sir, here's a brief for today, at 1000 such and such happened. It was a discussion about the articles that they were bringing in. And when you got a briefer who not only understood the topics, but could have that kind of strategic discussion, they were absolutely invaluable. And so I'll just leave it there. And, and so much fun for us. It keeps, you know, it keeps you getting up in the morning, the idea of being able to do that. I love that. So let's switch gears a little bit. Mike, I was wondering, how do you think the community looks different today than when you started? And I want you to look at it in whatever that means to you. Uh, well, when I started, you didn't see a lot of women in senior leadership roles. The five directors at the CIA today are all women. Uh, I think that's the first. I don't know if they've ever been all women all at the same time. And you had a, a female director as well, a woman director. And they're all highly successful kick and fanny for the United States of America. I mean, I, I, I'll be in their foxhole anytime they want. I know most of them and they're really doing amazing work. We've had other agencies, had women leaders. Sue Gordon was the principal deputy at the DNI and really doing great work. So, I mean, that part is, is a real, uh, to me, is a big positive change across the community because so many women have uh, risen up and, and taken leadership roles across the community. And I think it shows newer, younger women coming in. Hey, look, if I keep at this and I keep working hard and I do a few bad assignments that nobody wants uh, before I get to do some good assignments, uh, I too could be uh, promoted uh, along the way, right? I mean, really important to me. <laughs> the piece I don't like about this is I have never seen, boy, I just have never seen where in politics, the agencies themselves are targets and political foil. I, I think this is really a dangerous thing. I think it's, I don't know, I, I'm one that believes that the morale in the agencies is probably, uh, you know, around the coffee pot, they're probably complaining, but they're going to get back to work. I do believe that because they're there for a reason. It's real work. It's a real purpose. But this political narrative that uh, these agencies are bad and they're working against Americans, I think is really dangerous because the only way this survives, the only way we can do covert operations, uh, which is the most sensitive thing our government does. And as chairman, I, I reviewed every single one of those uh, as a part of this process. Boy, if America says, you know what, we don't trust them, we don't want them, we don't believe in them anymore, we're going to lose. We're going to go dark in places around the world we just don't want to go dark in. And so I, I think that's this one change that I hope that we turn around. And I've seen and it's not just uh, the intelligence agencies, it's, you know, the FBI has taken a, a, a bruising. And by the way, I don't excuse any bad behavior in any of those agencies. We should all not do that. But there's a way to correct that bad behavior, those one-offs, and not trash the work and the institutions that are charged mm -hmm. with that work and the people who are committing themselves to that work, which is just, you know, really, really important. And Nick, I think, outlined very well. I mean, think of that, that on the briefer side, taking all the information that's gathered packaging it up and putting it in a place that policymakers can make sense of it to go out and make decisions. Phew, that's a whole process. 
So, and look at the hours and the, and the beatings and the abuse. <laughs> that, that was just your own office, uh, let alone when you got, a, uh, got up uh, on the hill or someplace else. I worry that we have damaged uh, America's trust in these agencies. We're going to have to change that. That's a part that, gosh, 10 years ago or 15 years, ago, I never would have fathomed that would have happened, that we would have mm-hmm. taken, you know, just a big chunk of our political narrative and used it to club these agencies and the people that work there. I think it's just a dangerous trend. I hope we're over it. I hope that we are, we turn that corner. And again, the agencies have a responsibility to do things right. Don't get me wrong, but I sure don't think that they deserve this, uh, this kind of dark cloud that's hanging over them today. So on the two sides, really positive. Our diversity is getting better. It's never where you want it to be. Women leadership across the intelligence agency has just exploded. I think that's great. We've got to get this other piece right or we're all going to pay this price. Absolutely. So Nick, you joined the community a little bit more recently. So I'd be interested to know the changes you observed since you joined. Yeah, um, I I would echo what Chairman Rogers said. Uh, You know, I'm also troubled by the perceived politicization of the community in my experience when I was at the PDB. But but really, even before that, um, my experience was that we as Intel professionals came in every day with a single purpose, which was to, I mean, not to be hokey about it, but we do take this oath to support and defend the constitution. And um, it's one of the things that I've always loved actually about working in Intel. I think you could say this more broadly about working in government, but my experience in Intel is that um, we're not political people. We're just not, you know, we're super nerds when it comes to the topics that we're covering. You know, we're, we're analysts, you know, that love to talk about the various issues and what's happening in the world. But I think a lot of us felt a, a little blindsided by some of the, the things that, that the chairman mentioned. And uh, I think we're all hoping that we can just kind of put our heads down and continue doing good work and reestablish that trust that may have been lost among some the other thing I'll say is I think, and I'm really encouraged by this, much more recently we've seen a renewed commitment to increasing the diversity of the intelligence community across the board. I think that the community is for a long time acknowledged that we have a diversity problem, but it's really only been in the last, I'd say less than a year, that we've begun to see agencies move beyond lip service and set concrete goals Uh, and objectives for uh, recruitment. And I think that's exactly the direction we need to move in. And I'm really encouraged by it. I'll only offer this, um, what we saw as part of the uh, agency review teams uh, for the transition was the phrase I think uh, someone coined with regards to the workforce, heads down. And there's two parts of that. One, the morale and two, duck from the fire coming in, but mission focused. And so we ran into an awful lot of professionals who are like, we know what our mission is. We know what our commitment to this country is. We know the importance of truth to power. We can't talk about how our products are utilized, but we are mission focused and we remain that way. So that was really refreshing to hear from the bulk of the workforce. Absolutely. So Vince, I'd like to talk a little bit about leadership, and I would love for you to tell us your approach to building teams. What do you look for in an ideal team player? I will point you to a book uh, by Patrick Lencioni titled The Ideal Team Player. And uh, the ideal team player, I think he says, has uh, three virtues, characteristics. Number one is humility. 
willing to sacrifice, sacrifice being too strong a term, uh, set aside your ego for the goodness of the team. Second characteristics is enough energy and passion to do the job. Know your role, play your role, do it with uh, passion and energy. And then the third one is really, uh, I guess the best way I put it is emotional intelligence. How do you interact with that workforce to make them feel a part of the team? And, and the story I like to tell is, uh, is Frankie. Frankie is the guy who every morning I'd walk into the building at DIA and look at the, uh, the floor, the deck, depending on uh, your, your service preference. And I see this just a sparkling entryway to the building. It made me feel really good to see that someone had spent God knows how many hours getting that thing looking like a mirror. And so I was leaving one evening and there was Frankie on the machine buffing away. And I stopped and he took his headphones off and I said, Frankie, I just really want to thank you because this is something that nobody else is doing. You're up here doing it every night and it is spectacular. You would have thought I made him king of Prince George's County or whatever. He was so elated that the director of DIA brought him into the team as a contributing member of the team by buffing the floors in our organization. Frankie, every time he saw me, he just beamed. He wanted to go get his degree now. He wanted to figure out how he was going to participate in the leadership of DIA someday. And for me, it was just such a simple thing to say thank you. But that meant the world to Frankie and brought him into the team. And so the, 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 the message behind that is everybody can play a role. Sometimes you just really need to stop and say thanks encourage folks to uh, offer their opinion and be an encouragement to someone. And if you can do that, then you can interact with everybody from the lowest janitor up to uh, the chairman of the House uh, Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. You've got a chance of being able to build the right teams and get the right outcomes. And I don't know where Frankie is, but I'm looking forward to seeing if he got his degree and what's next for him. But a simple Two words. Thank you. And that meant the world of uh, bringing this young man onto the team. Oh, I love that story. And I hope we can find Frankie so he can listen to this episode. <laughs> we got to get on that. So, Mike, you also had an interesting approach to collaborative leadership and building teams across the aisle. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So when, when uh, I became chairman, we had not had a budget for the intelligence community for six years because they could not agree. The Republicans and Democrats could not agree on a budget. And it was both teams were equally at fault. And it was sometimes it was embarrassing to be in there. We'd have all the professionals up like Nick or the general, and there were fights amongst members openly. And it really, it was awful. And I always thought, thought to myself, gosh, if I ever become German, that's all going to end. I mean, it was embarrassing. I thought for a group of professionals to act that way. So when we became chairman, I sat down with Dutch, and Dutch uh, was is a great guy. I knew him before that. And we said, listen, can we agree that that this is for national security purposes? It's one of the most important things we're going to do as members. Shouldn't we be able to figure this out? I mean, this wasn't a hard sell. We kind of both knew our backgrounds, knew where we wanted to go. So once we did that, we did something interesting. To the general's point, we had to win the staff over as well. 
there's some long seated Donny Brooks going on between staff over there. Right. And so, uh, you know, there was, it was like a knife fight in there some days uh, between these staff members. We said, okay, we got to get this fixed. And we thought leadership at the top was really important. So interesting forcing function. We told the Republican and Democrat staffs, and this hadn't been done to that point, that you were going to brief the committee, both Republicans and Democrats at the same time on the same budget. Seemed to make sense to me. And boy, there was a lot of screaming about this, right? Because people wanted their own angles and, oh, well, we got that worked out. And then Dutch and I made another promise that on any budget deal, if there was an amendment uh, that was not related to the work at hand, right? And I'm talking about these political amendments, they call them messaging amendments, which has shut down every budget deal we ever had because people couldn't agree to not have these political messaging amendments, had nothing to do with the intelligence community, that I would stop mine if he would stop his. And, you know, it was a very tough first go round of this budget because nobody was used to that, uh, where our members would come up and offer an amendment. And I said, I'm not supporting it and uh, we're going to beat it. And he would do the same thing with his. And boy, it created a little bit of angst in the beginning, But over time, it started showing, hey, we're going to do this together. And what it really did is focus us on the mission, right? Is is your mission to be political in this committee or is your mission to do important national security oversight work? And I think over time, we started, everybody came together. Matter of fact, people became friends, staff became friends, Republicans and Democrats. I'm still a close friend of Dutch Ruppersberger today. Uh, he's the opposite party of mine. I don't know. You're allowed to say that anymore in this town. People <laughs> right. drag you in the street or something. But it, what it did do, and by the way, it didn't mean we agreed on everything. We just we agreed that we were going to work it out amongst ourselves. We weren't going to do it in front of uh, Nick or uh, General Stewart. We were going to work this kind of stuff out. So when they came, they could do their important work, which is keep the committee currently informed. So that's the kind of collaborative style that we used. Uh, and this is a true story. Again, we went through the whole budget process. We were going to get a budget and we got one and we were in the basement of the Capitol and we reached over the table and we said, all right, that's it, right? We got a deal. This is going to be the budget. By the way, these, these were significant. The unclassified number was 70 some billion dollars. I think it was 75 at the time, billion dollars, right? Can you imagine spending $75 billion without a budget? Well, they did it for six years. So we said, this is a big deal. We're going to get this budget. This is going to be the first one. Are you ready? And we said, both said, yes. We reached across the table to shake hands and literally the building started doing this. It was the day of the earthquake. Earthquake. Oh, my goodness. Just as sure as I'm sitting, we we thought, oh, my God, what have we done? We we, we, we broke this place. Oh, my God. True story. We ended up having to come outside and evacuate the building. But that was the first time that we had signed a deal on that. Uh, And after that, it just got better. And part of that, I think, sent the signal to our intelligence community uh, folks that, hey, we were serious. And we'll be serious with you. You'd be serious with us. And we're all going to get along famously. And we did a lot of well, what General Stewart would talked about as well as had smaller meetings. The other thing I did is I sent new members who had never had any intelligence experience. Uh, and I sent them down to places where we train these people, both analysts and FBI agents, case officers, and said, you just need a little spin time to understand what it takes to become uh, in uh, part of that profession so that now you're not sniping at them. You're asking them important questions. You understand the difficulties of their job. So that was all part of what we were doing to try to build a team that said, yep, we're allowed to disagree, but we don't have to be disagreeable. 
and we can probably work out most of this stuff. So that's that kind of collaborative working style that we did. And by the way, I did it with my own staff. If we had a really tough, hard issue, I would bring them in the room and someone's uh, significant other was a part of this. <laughs> and who that might have been. Oh, I have no idea who that might have been. <laughs> we had some Donnybrooks in there. I mean, people were not in a bad way, but people were passionate about defending their position and why. And when you put that many A personalities who are really smart in a small little room and tell them, let's, let's debate this out, it was actually great fun. And I think it was highly productive. And then at the end, we'd all work it out. We'd get it done and we move out. Again, to me, that's that collaborative, bring people in, be passionately uh, curious, respect everyone's opinion, even if you disagree with it. And that's the way we built, I think, trust, at least on the Intel committee when, when I was chairman and, and my partner, Dutch Ruppersberger, was the vice chairman. That's great. So Nick, at the working level, what does a good team look like for you? You know, what are the components of a successful team? And can you tell us about an effective team that you've been a part of? So I have to say an effective team at my level looks exactly the same as an effective team at the chairman's level and the general's level. I mean, I just love the story General Stewart told about the guy buffing the floor. And I'm sure in that moment, Frankie felt the same way about the team as the director of DIA, you know. So I'd say, you know, probably the most effective team I've been on has been at the PDB. If, if I haven't been clear, it's been a really uh, a, an impactful tour of duty <laughs> that I had career-wise. And I mean, I think that the reason was, I think at the end of the day, there are many components to what makes a good team. But for us in that particular moment, and I think this is probably broadly applicable to good teams, there was mutual trust and respect among almost everyone on the team. Of course, there are going to be outliers on every team, but by and large, I'd say that we all trusted each other and we all respected each other. And those were really mutually enforcing virtues and really magic happened. I mean, you could see communication improve among the team. You saw collaboration improve. I, I, I have a similar view of teams, you know, as General Stewart, at the PDB, I, I really viewed our team as extending from the PDB director and actually beyond, you know, if we want to get really meta about it. But let's just say from the PDB director to we were lucky enough to have drivers that took us to our briefings every morning. And honestly, I couldn't have done I couldn't have done my job without Luis, who was honestly the best driver I've ever met. There were a few times I thought we were going to go into the Potomac, but he got me where I needed to be every day, even if I was you know, 15 minutes late, panting, frustrated, flustered. He made sure I got where I needed to be to, you know, I guess in military parlance, fulfill the mission. So, you know, I think that having trust and respect and, and also maybe on top of it, having everyone on the team understand that they're sort of in it together and that they have a unity of purpose. Those things all contributed to a really terrific uh, and fun uh, team at the PDB. Awesome. So as you all know, we created Iron Butterfly to share stories of women in the intelligence community. Can you each share with us a story of a woman that's helped shape or mentor you in your career? Vince, let's start with you. So this one will probably get me in trouble because I'll have to pick somebody, you know? And as soon as, as, soon as you go, yeah, Joan was the one, then uh, Sally will call going, I thought <laughs> I was the one. Uh, you know, uh, so I'm going to slightly do this generically. I got to the Pentagon in, uh, 2001 ish 
I had just come out of the Marine Corps unit in the field where I was trying to get uh, camouflage netting for my unit. And the cost of the camouflage netting was about $300,000. That's a king's ransom in the Marine Corps. So I get to uh, the Pentagon and I'm working at the time for uh, the Assistant Secretary of Defense for C3I. And this particular lady asked me to put together a brief for, at the time, was the uh, process of metadata tagging of uh, the data that we had so that we could build the structure to tag data and retrieve data more efficiently. And she took this young lieutenant colonel at the time, I guess I could call myself young back then, explained how the system worked, helped me to design uh, a program, guided me through briefing the program to the uh, members of the IC, who all said it was a great idea and rejected funding the, uh, the program because nobody wanted to give up any money. And I, I remember I was devastated. And she came back uh, to the office and she said, okay, got it. Now build me a program for X millions of dollars. I will get uh, half of it from uh, our Langley brothers and I will get half from the Pentagon. And again, you know, she guided me through that process. And here was uh, this Marine who was struggling to get 300,000, trying to be as precise as possible counting to every chair, every seat, every piece of paper that would uh, account for this uh, millions of dollars. And uh, this woman, uh, God bless her, just, uh, okay, give me the big outlines. Here's how you develop the program. Here's how we'll execute it. And she taught me more about money in the building. You know, I, I came into the building going, I just need X amount of money. And third, you need procurement dollars, R&D dollars, O&M dollars, what color money. I'm going, I just need the standard greenback stuff. And uh, she taught me an awful <laughs> lot about uh, money and different types of money in the building and learned very quickly that, uh, you know, the golden rule, Hugh owns the gold rules. She definitely owned the gold. Uh, she had folks like Tish Long uh, uh, working for her and, So uh, a very, very impactful person in teaching me how money works in Washington. And uh, I'm pretty sure she knows who she is. And so thanks in in case she's listening. (laughs) Awesome. Wonderful. Mike, let's let's go with you next. I've been very, very lucky. I, I didn't really have a mentor in the IC, as I think we would understand a mentorship. But I've been around uh, women who inspire, boy, from the very beginning. So my classmates in the FBI Academy were probably, we were about 20% women. And at that time, that was kind of a big deal. That was starting to change. Remember, this was dating myself a little bit, but it was in the 80s. And that was just kind of turning. So where women were getting more roles in the FBI. So I got to watch their inspiration and, and candidly treat them like classmates, which was great. And we, we had lots of bonding experiences there that I think lasted throughout my whole career on watching these women who were kind of cutting their teeth, if you will, in a pretty male-oriented environment. Uh, and that, to me, that was inspiring to watch them and, and them coming out the other end completely respected and active. You know, we saw FBI agents. We didn't see men FBI agents and women FBI agents. I thought that was 
huge and significant. When I got into politics too, I, I had most of my leadership were, were women and it wasn't that way. It, was, it wasn't by design. I wasn't saying that. I mean, these were just really knowledgeable, very capable, you know, work to their, you know, to all the ends of the earth to get things done. And so that was kind of that inspiration for me. They became part of my team and my leadership, not only in the campaign, but when I won as well. Uh, and then the one person I would say that was in the IC and went and was in politics who provided some mentorship for me, uh, and I'll back up quickly. So I, one of the things when I got on the committee, I was all counterterrorism. I was counterintelligence. That was going to be my focus. Those are the things I wanted to work on. You know, I was going to get to chase Soviets after all. Uh, <laughs> right. On by that time, I was going to do a lot of these counterintelligence, build programs within the community through Congress. And so I was kind of focused on those things. And I realized, wow, if I don't understand space as it relates to intelligence, I am not doing my job. And so I had somebody who was willing to sit down with me who was fantastic. And she pulled me along uh, in space. And she was very patient. Heather Wilson, I'll throw her name out there, later became Secretary of the Air Force because she was she kind of handled the space portfolio on the committee. And she was very really gracious because I went in, I was ground zero. I know nothing. I mean, you know, satellite. Yeah, I know what that is. I, I, you know, I, <laughs> I really had to go through a course and she helped me coordinate through the, diff- the right agencies at the time. So that I would get the right information, get the right uh, education and come out the other uh, side, hopefully smarter, <laughs> which I did. And so her doing all of that set it up perfectly. So when she decided she was leaving the committee, uh, she basically walked in and threw it on my desk and guess, guess, said, guess who the space guy is now? So she outsmarted me the whole time. Uh, she knew exactly what she, she was. She was grooming you. She yes, was grooming she was. you. <laughs> and, you know, without that, honestly, and I do a lot in space now, even in the private sector, uh, I'd never would have made that turn. And so she saw something in me that, you know, that passionate curiosity that I had and really wanted to understand the whole picture. And through her leadership and patience, I think it gave me the the opportunity to be a bit of an expert now in space matters when it comes to intelligence. And so she was that one figure there, but I've been really blessed. I've had great uh, women leaders around me in every job that I've had. I just never, we never had that formal mentor relationship. I think now it would be if I had to start over again, and I think I saw these, the women leaders, I think it would be much easier to establish that mentor relationship. And I, I hope, you know, that men mentor women and women mentor men. I think that's really, really important in this business where we're all on the same mission in ways that just didn't happen when I was a new, you know, a baby agent, you know, trying to figure out how to get my credentials out of my pocket and open them up without dropping them, uh, you know, looking goofy when I was an FBI guy. <laughs> fronting a bad guy, right? So that's why I think the place is better, but I would kind of lay it out in that way. Awesome. How about you, Nick? Uh, yeah, I, I can't pick one woman. That's that's impossible. Reflecting on this question, I realize that I'm the product <laughs> career-wise and you know, just personally of a lot of amazing women of the intelligence community and outside the intel community. You know, I was raised in the New York area by some very strong independent women who are still strong independent women. And throughout my career in Intel, I've been really blessed to have, you know, benefited from the leadership of an office director and division chief, both women who uh, were great mentors to me and, and really helped me to understand what, what intelligence is. Yeah, that was important because when I came in, I really didn't understand the community. But even more important, 
uh, I think, was um, how to be a good colleague um, and a you know dependable worker and someone who conducts himself with integrity. So I was really fortunate to work under those women who um, built a really great team. And then at the PDB, you know, I continued that lucky streak working for uh, Beth Sanner at the time was the PDB director. And she went on to become deputy director of national intelligence and briefer to the president. And then even most recently, I was fortunate to work for one of the founding members of AWICS, um, Eleanor McCarthy. So yeah, I mean, I'd say my career has at this point really been shaped by women. I found them to be really great. I've, I've had a lot of mentors, men and women, but you know, in terms of actual supervisors, uh, the women have had a, a real outsized impact. Yeah, and I, I, just to piggyback off that, you know, I've been lucky enough to work for Ellen as well, and there is no greater mentor than her. So I want to go back to something we talked about a little bit. We just touched on a little bit earlier in the episode. And something that's really important to us on this podcast is the idea of diversity encompasses a lot more than just gender. America is one of the most diverse nations in the world, and we've seen the challenges that have come with that this past year, including for our own national security. Our question for you all is, how can diversity be a strength for America? And how can we leverage the diversity of America to promote our national security? Mike, let's start with you. Well, A, the, I think the community just did a horrible job for a very long time trying to have outreach with people of color, trying to attract them to the intelligence business. And we have a responsibility to try to attract the right people into the intelligence business. And so I think over time, they've gotten better. They have focused programs. We worried about it in, in, uh, from the committee's perspective. It was always an item uh, that we talked about every year going through the budget process, just about how they're doing and, and uh, how they're doing on their diversity. And I do think it's getting better. It's, you know, I, it fits and starts. Uh, when the fighting starts, everybody forgets about everything else and they kind of focus on what their mission is. And these are things that take effort because I don't, in many ways, certain communities just don't get the exposure. I mean, had I not had somebody who was a special agent in charge of the DEA, I'm not sure I ever would have been an FBI agent, right? You need to expose it. If you're not exposed to it, then we have to go find you. Uh, And I think that's where the community had some fits and starts. You have to go find these talented people and introduce them to this notion that uh, there's a bigger, better cause out there, and you can work for your country in really cool and interesting ways. Come and try it. That's just a harder task, and and you just can't let up on it. I do think the community is doing better, but it's just something that we're always going to have to pay attention to as we move forward. Vince, let's go with you next. We have some of the brightest, most innovative, creative minds across our entire nation, and we also have immigrants who are anxious as hell to come and be a part of this, who are committed to the freedom, the opportunity to express ideas, explore things, develop the best. So we have uh, a, a diverse population to draw from. What we've not done very well to build on uh, uh, Chairman Rogers, we've not been uh, systematic about the recruiting because we're anxious about somebody claiming that it's a, it's a quota or some other negative connotation. But the reality is this is not going, diversity is not going to happen organically. If it was going to happen organically, it would have happened already. So you've got to be very uh, deliberate in 
a bad phrase, but only because I don't know English well, targeting those people that you want to get after, targeting those hard-charging immigrants who want to embrace this country and all of its ideals and all of its principles. And then after you've recruited, uh, the place that I see both in industry and in in our uh, service, we're not spending enough time retention, retaining that middle group. That middle group is a group that's going to go back to their neighborhoods and go, you know what? FBI is a cool place to work. You can should come join us. Or, oh, for God's sakes, don't go to the FBI. Those guys are horrible. So if you're not spending time at three layers, recruiting enough of a base, retaining that middle group, and being purposeful, it, you know, your chances of being a head coach in the National Football League goes up if you've been a coordinator. So what are the critical jobs that you're going to put people in or position them so that they're filling those coordinator jobs so it's not that big a deal when they show up at the top of the pyramid? That's the story that you hear so many times. I don't have many to choose from. And you don't have many to choose from because you didn't cultivate the middle and you didn't position the coordinators so that it's like, I've got 10 of these guys and I can pick one and I'll do okay. But how we leverage, how diversity brings strength is the fact that we all have a different perspective based on where we grew up, the experiences that we've had, and all of that is really valuable when you start thinking and planning and executing mission. And if you miss out on any of these because it's just one particular group and they all think the same and they reinforce the ideas, then you're not going to get the maximum out of your workforce. And so, you know, I, I wrestle with this sometimes in the Marine Corps because the Marine Corps has been very successful. And the question I often hear, so how's diversity going to really make me more successful than I've been? Well, uh, there may be an idea out there that says we use our weapons and our capabilities a little bit different because I grew up in, in the swamps of Louisiana and this is the, what it's like. But you've got to be able to hear that uh, creativity and that innovative spirit And oh, by the way, I'm all about diversity, but I'm far more uh, about inclusion because it's really easy to go, I need six of those and three of these and two of those. But if they don't feel like they're part of the team and are contributing and able to use those innovative ideas and voice as part of a team, then you basically just check the block. Okay, I'm going to stop before I preach too much more. A hundred percent. Nick, did you have anything to add? Yeah, I I think that um, to pull on the thread that General Stewart just introduced, I think that some people view diversity and inclusion efforts uh, critically as a sort of box checking exercise. And um, when it's done right, that is just not the case. You know, I think that it's really unfortunate that the IC has not done a better job in this field because we are trained as professionals. Part of our tradecraft is to recognize our own biases and assumptions. And when we fail to do that, we fall into the sort of groupthink and sort, you know, uh, similar thought patterns that can actually jeopardize us and the intelligence analysis that we do. I, I mean, I really strongly believe that creating a more diverse and inclusive workforce is in the national security interest of the United States because it will make us all better analysts and it will help us to produce 
better analysis for the policymakers to make better decisions. Um, so, uh, like I said before, um, I'm really encouraged because I think that we have um, sort of a new groundswell uh, among IC leadership right now in their interest in, in increasing diverse recruitment and, um, you know, really paying attention to that diversity inclusion component. I, I think it's really important. And, and thanks for asking the question. I, I think it's a really important one. So um, we've come to the end. And I think you all know that we end each episode with the same question. And keeping with the name of this podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Mike, let's go with you. Oh, boy. So I got into the FBI by the skin on my teeth. I had some really lucky breaks uh, for cases. I was able to recruit some people that turned this small case into a pretty big case against organized crime and public corruption in Chicago. Decided to get in politics. I won the closest race in the country that year. I won by 88 votes. For those of you thinking about politics, I don't don't recommend that. That's not the way to do it. <laughs> you really want a lot more margin than that. I was able to get on to the the uh, Intelligence Committee, which was just a dream come true for me, uh, and became chairman uh, with a really great partner, Dutch Ruppersberger. I married probably, I married so far above my station, I have married the most amazing woman in the world. So I look back at my career and said, boy, if, if I had to have a code name walking away from this, I'd have to call myself the leprechaun. I may really be one of the luckiest guys in all of the country coming from a small town who de- whose dad was a teacher uh, and my mom worked at a nonprofit. You know, I look at this long trail and, and think, you know, yeah, there was a lot of hard work and, and work ethics important, but a little luck doesn't hurt either. So I'm going to go with Leprechaun. Well, you know, what's uh, awesome about this is our listeners might, they're going to hear this maybe a couple weeks from the time we, we record it, but today is actually St. Patrick's Day. So it's very timely. I love it. Thanks for sharing. Vince, let's go with you. I, I was told that it's uh, bad form to give yourself a, uh, a name. You really need your teammates to go, you know what, uh, that guy's always grumpy. So from here on out, we're going to call him grumpy. The closest thing I suspect uh, for a very, very, very brief moment, someone suggested that I was the jackal. And the jackal, because I often pleasantly destroyed my opponents. So there may have been a little chuckle, a little bit of smile, a little bit of, you know, uh, I'm enjoying eating this uh, bit of carcass. This was as a captain. This was a long time ago. And like I said, for a very, uh, so I changed my personality just a little, to be a lot nicer and not be viewed as uh, ripping apart uh, a, uh, a rival and laughing all the way process. So uh, if, if I were to default to a, uh, a name, I'd probably go back to that. Uh, but I prefer to be uh, low under the radar and not get a good uh, code name. I love it. Nick, we're going to round it out with you. Oh, man, guys. So I spent a long time thinking about this. And there were a whole bunch of options. But... Actually, I just decided today what I think uh, it's going to be, you know, so I felt strongly that I had to give some, you know, um, nod to 
my State Department experience, you know, INR is the Bureau of Intelligence and Research within the State Department. I've been at State for more than 10 years now. So I, I, I want to give some nod to State. I'm reading uh, Ambassador Bill Burns's memoir right now um, about his really remarkable career um, as a U.S. diplomat. Uh, he eventually went on to become the Deputy Secretary at the State Department. He's now nominated to be the Director of CIA. And, you know, it reminded me of the, the real value of diplomacy and um, the really hard work that diplomats do, building bridges, maintaining relationships. And I, you know, realized that in my own career, which is not that of a diplomat, but uh, that of an intel professional, an analyst, some of my favorite jobs have been doing similar kind of work, being a trusted representative of the IIC to the policymakers. So uh, in, in that vein, I went with Envoy Ooh. because I like just the connotation that you are a trusted member of a community that is maintaining and building relationships and um, growing something out of that, growing something positive out of that. So Envoy. Wow. I can't believe that we are already finished with this episode. I, you know, I'm behalf of myself, on behalf of AWIC, on behalf of NSI, I just want to thank you all so much for joining us tonight. And I thank you for your incredible service, for your candidness. We were so privileged to speak with you tonight, and I am so incredibly grateful that you joined us here on Iron Butterfly. This has been a special episode of Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the amazing women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Lastly, we'd like to thank Resolute Unicorn and Wise with Syria for making this amazing series possible. We'd also like to thank Grant Haver for production assistance. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time.